You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're continuing our series on accountability for the atrocities in Ukraine. We spoke to friend of the cast, Yevgeny Vindman, who gave us a firsthand account of how Ukraine is collecting evidence of war crimes and how they're prosecuting these offenses in Ukraine. However, we also know that the International Criminal Court, the ICC, as we will refer to it, has announced an indictment of none other than Vladimir Putin. But there may be other indictments that are not public. Today seems like a really good time to recap where the ICC gets its authority, what its jurisdiction includes, and a few procedural rules that it follows that may serve as a guide on how any future prosecutions can unfold. Separately, we're going to explore how war crimes tribunals have been formed in the past and how they might be formed in the future in response to what is happening in Ukraine. To get some thoughtful answers, we turn tonight to our guest, Professor Cora True Frost. She is the Bond, and I'm going to butcher this, Shonik and King Distinguished Professor of Law at Syracuse, the Director of the Journal of Global Rights and Organization and Impunity Watch News. But importantly, she's also served as a legal consultant for the Fofana Defense Team at the Special Court for Sierra Leone, as well as coordinating the NGO Working Group on Women, Peace, and Security at UN Headquarters here in the United States and New York. Cora, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Elisa. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's do a bit of an orientation for our listeners. Talk to us a little bit about the ICC, the Rome Statute, and who created this international body and who is subject to its jurisdiction. So the ICC is a critically important innovation in international justice, and yet its details sometimes elude even the most expert of followers of the court. So I think it is important for us to lay some basics out. ICC is the creation of a treaty, a multilateral treaty called the Rome Statute that was the outcome of a long process of consideration of states and that was sort of sponsored by the United Nations. 160 states came together in July 1998 after lengthy negotiations and many controversies, I'm still waiting for a movie to come out about it, actually. This treaty was adopted that establishes the ICC, sets out the crimes that fall within its jurisdiction, as well as the rules of procedure and the mechanisms to allow states to cooperate with the ICC. Part of the innovation of the International Criminal Court is that states' parties, the parties that have signed on to the institution, have agreed to subject themselves to the jurisdiction jurisdiction of the court and have opened themselves up to international prosecution of perpetrators of the most serious crimes committed in their territories or by nationals of their country after the entry of force of the Rome Statute, which was on the 1st of July in 2002. Out of those 160 states that negotiated the treaty, 123 states are parties to the Rome Statute today. That includes 33 African states, 19 Asian Pacific states, 18 Eastern European states, 28 states from Latin America and the Caribbean, 
and 25 from Western Europe and other states. Let's go a little bit deeper on that. So it was formed in Mm -hmm. 1998, which was historically, give us a little context, not, you know, a lot of our listeners weren't even born in 1998. They may not realize that modernly that was a post-genocide moment for the world. That's true. And the conference happened in 98 and it took some time to establish the court. It didn't open until 2002. For listeners who weren't born in 1998, perhaps surprising level of international cooperation at that time and a shared international will to hold accountable perpetrators of mass atrocities. That appetite for accountability for massive human rights violations really had its defining moment in the Nuremberg trials after World War II, but the idea had been percolating and ripening. And after the atrocities that occurred this time under the watch of the United Nations in Rwanda and the war in Yugoslavia, the international community through the auspices of the United Nations Security Council established to ad hoc tribunals. And the ICC was in a sense, a validation of those tribunals and then also a sign from the community of nations that it wanted to do better than simply allowing permanent members of the UN Security Council to act in an ad hoc fashion in response to atrocities. And so the International Criminal Court was born. And notably, it came to life even in the face of pretty entrenched opposition from many of the permanent Security Council members. And let's talk about who that entrenched opposition. For those of you who may not be aware, in Rwanda, there was the genocide of an entire ethnic group that occurred more or less seemingly spontaneously to a lot. And by the way, this was pre-social media days, and much of what occurred was broadcast over radio in Rwanda. The hit, so to speak, was called out through that medium. But then also in Yugoslavia, for those of you who really haven't looked at this or thought about it in years, there was the widespread killing murder of Muslims at the hand of Slobodan Milosevic at the time. And so just to say where we were, we were all looking at this. It was all being covered on television and in the media. And there was this gasp of horror that maybe humanity hadn't elevated itself to a point that we had hoped. And so when you describe the need for something outside the UN Security Council, it's like a separate infrastructure was needed with separate rules and something that would be available anytime humanity sunk to this sickening low that they could be responsive. Yeah. And unfortunately, you're right that it is responsive, an important aspect and a frustrating one to note with international criminal justice is that it is a post hoc response that depending on your theory of criminal law, its capacity to act as a as a general deterrent is not necessarily the most persuasive of factors for it. It's there in part as a deterrent and also as an expressive value of this shared sense that we could do better, I think. So by its very nature, it's powerless to intervene and create justice in the actual conflict itself. But the hope is that with this particular institution, but I feel like we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because we need to lay out some more of the the factors that are involved in the ICC and how it is distinguished from the ad hoc tribunals to understand how it has more of a hope of acting as a deterrent than the ad hoc 
tribunals would, but the hope is that with the institution there, there will be a kind of ongoing accountability mechanism that is available in cases, unfortunately, like we have now today with Ukraine and Russia. But it's limited in its capacity to do that by the willingness of states to subject themselves to the jurisdiction of the ICC. Let's sort of get into their jurisdiction. So what is the scope of the ICC's jurisdiction and who decides what crimes the ICC should pursue? I and Martha Minow and Alex Whiting edited a book called The First Global Prosecutor, and we debated for a while whether we could actually call it a global prosecutor, the prosecutor for the ICC, given that, in fact, the International Criminal Court is a court of limited jurisdiction. It is a global court, but there are a number of ways that its jurisdiction is limited. The first and most important way is that the ICC is meant to be complementary court, one that enters into the picture only when the state itself is unable or unwilling to genuinely carry out an investigation and to prosecute the perpetrators. That's the first and most important thing. So the first prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo, used to say that the court will be a success when there are no cases before the court because the states themselves are trying accused war criminals and leaders. The other limitations on the jurisdiction of the court, firstly, are the substantive jurisdiction, which is the court only has jurisdiction over four crimes. The first is genocide. That is defined in Article 6, and genocide is characterized by a specific intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group by killing its members or by other means. And then there are a number of other components of the crime, of the actual actus reus that compose the crime. There's crimes against humanity, war crimes, and aggression. So the ICC has jurisdiction over genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the crime of aggression. In addition to having this limited scope of jurisdiction that only covers those crimes, it also can only cover temporally crimes that occurred after 2002, July 1st, 2002, which is when the Rome Statute came into being. The idea of aggression was present at the Rome conference and in the negotiations, but it was so controversial that it was shelved and separate conferences took place in Kampala, Uganda, to negotiate what the actual definition of aggression would be. And it came into effect in July 2018. That's significant for our discussion today about Russia and Ukraine, because this international crime of aggression has only been defined before the court since 2018. Further, not only is there the temporal jurisdiction limits, the limits to the actual crimes that can be prosecuted, the ICC can only exercise jurisdiction over those four crimes in three ways. It can only receive cases in three ways. One is where a state party itself, a party to the Rome Statute refers the crimes to the courts, so that's referred to as a state party referral, or where the United Nations Security Council, 
agrees, that is, that at least a permanent member doesn't veto the idea of sending a situation to the court. Or finally, and this was particularly controversial, the ICC prosecutor, his or herself, may initiate preliminary examination into the crimes on their own initiative, so proprio motu investigation. So state party referral, UN Security Council referral, or appropriate motu investigation would be how the court actually gets its jurisdiction, which means that there are crimes that may occur, for example, money laundering, or the movement of guns across borders that were essential to the genocide in Rwanda, for example, that can't come before the court. They they would have to come in under crimes against humanity or war crimes, and they're more difficult for the court to prosecute. And then also, if the atrocities are occurring in countries that aren't state parties and that don't have nationals of a state that is a member of the Rome Statute, the ICC is powerless to intervene. I mean, as an institution of law, it can't just sua sponte, reach out and grab. Expand its own jurisdiction. Exactly. Expand its own jurisdiction. So you just feel like it because this is bad. Right. Um, right. Right. Okay, but I want to focus on something. These options are in, you were phrasing them in this disjunctive. One of the issues here is you mentioned the UN Security Council. Let's pause for a minute to say we have two issues on the UN Security Council right now. One is China and one is the Russian Federation who have veto power, correct? Right. So the UN Security Council has five permanent members. And when you say we have two issues, (laughs) I assume you mean... What do you mean? (laughs) Here's what I mean. Okay, if they're supposed to be referring the cases, there are people who turn themselves into the police, but it's not often, right? Right. Just walk in and say, you may not be aware I'm responsible for this murder committed 22 years ago, but I did it. However, if Russia has a veto power and the leader of Russia is the person committing the offense, presumably under the way that it's structured, they could simply veto a referral? That's correct. Yes. So, in fact, that was the impasse during the conflict in Syria. There were, I think it was about 14 times that there was an attempt by members of the Security Council would refer a situation. The Security Council is aware of allegations of massive atrocities in a particular location by some parties, and it would send that situation to the court to investigate and determine what cases would need to be brought in that situation. At any rate, there were multiple attempts to do just that in the case of Syria during the ongoing conflict there, and each one was squashed by Russia and China together or by one of the other specifically. That's an interesting note there. The bottom line is Russia can say, hey, I'm a strong man. You're a strong man. I think I'll veto this thing. They may get access in some instances to a warm water port and life goes on. But there is that third option that you mentioned that they can do an investigation. The ICC can do an investigation itself. That's right. The term is a preliminary examination. So that's a step short of an investigation. A preliminary examination is kind of an innovation of the first prosecutor, the office of the prosecutor's office, where the idea is that that office will make clear that they are looking into and following, they're paying close attention to or concerned about events that are occurring in a particular situation. 
in so doing, send a signal to that location that the world is watching and that they will be collecting information about what's occurring there and looking at whether to open a case. The check on the prosecutor in that case, the check against a prosecutor run amok with visions of glory and retribution against any particular state, is that the prosecutor has to submit the allegations that they have, the evidence that they have to support an indictment to the pretrial chamber and needs authorization to proceed. So it isn't the case that the the prosecutor can simply move all the way to indicting without the intervention and review of another entity and so forth. There are checks and balances built into the ICC to prevent the nightmare scenario of a runaway prosecutor. But that wasn't the concern, I think, for the vetoing parties during the conflict in Syria. There, the, the concern was simply that the crimes that were occurring in Syria would actually make it to a court and be scrutinized by the international community. Since Syria was not a party to the Rome staff, Statute, a state self-referral couldn't happen. I mean, it could have, like it, like it right. has in Ukraine, if Syria had decided to subject itself to the jurisdiction during that time. But of course, Assad was the ruling leader who's representing the state, and he had no interest in subjecting himself to that scrutiny. So uh, that didn't seem to be on his menu. <laughs> you know, it wasn't something he was willing to. Um, he was too busy at the time. I think is right, what, right, what gassing people. Say. Yeah, yes. This is like trench humor. You've just got to deal with the macabre yeah. in some way. Yeah. when you yeah. do this kind to work. True. So there are checks and balances internally. But what I like about what I'm hearing is that the UN Security Council can't come in and say, stop this right now. This can't happen. Correct. If the prosecutor goes forward. Oh, so so what is the Security Council's power if the prosecutor initiates a prosecution, you know, after being supported by the court? Actually, the Security Council, if it could reach agreement, can pause. They can't pause a case that is proceeding before the court. But if something is in a more preliminary phase and with the limit that if they can agree and no Security Council member vetoes it, Mm -hmm. they can ask for a pause. Let me look at this. You know, this is something that the U.S. did in the beginning. We basically had all the Security Council members agree to issue resolutions that said that U.S. military members would not be prosecuted. So we kind of preemptively, oh, wow. yeah, we pre we we enacted these. We gave ourselves the, immunity. We gave it like an immunity yeah, clause. Right. When Abu Ghraib happened, mm-hmm. the U.S. lost that credibility and we lost the votes on the Security Council to continue that little loophole we had worked in. Our, I mean, it wasn't something anyone had anticipated happening. It was more like, look, if there are negotiations going on, then peace negotiations or something, maybe the Security Council would have to say, please pause what you're doing so that the interests of, of justice can be served. But the U.S. And let's put it. some gloss on that. You, you, yeah. If you're prosecuting a guy in the world court and he says, I'm going to lay down arms, you know, sort of the greater good might dictate in that situation that, you know, all right, look, if he's going to stop killing right now and he's looking for some sort of an out. And I use the article he, so I apologize, but it often is he, that, you know, there's some mechanism to bring them to the table. There's some procedural device that could be allowed as sort of a carrot in this situation. 
I know a lot about the first prosecutor because of the book that I edited, not only with Martha Minow and Alex Whiting, but because uh, Luis Manuel Campo came to Harvard and we had a, a winter seminar where students helped to generate and proof and think through some of the prosecutorial policies of the ICC. But Luis sort of had to face this question of the peace versus justice debate. I mean, that's basically how it summed up is what do you do when you have this quandary of the parties are willing to come to the table, but they say we won't do it if there are criminal trials ongoing now or if we're going to face criminal prosecution later. And the prosecutor issued a a strategy paper that said that basically his mission is one of justice and not of peace. And so it is not his jurisdiction to be keeping an eye on political negotiations and the feasibility of those negotiations ripening and then pausing his quest for accountability and justice. And so his job is to see that the interests of justice are served. And that's how he interpreted his mission, which I think was probably wise because it's a sort of unwinnable issue of the peace versus justice. And already the court is open to significant criticism, not as much from court watchers as from others who who aren't as familiar with the constraints that the court faces on its jurisdiction, who don't then understand why it isn't more powerful than it actually is. So I think it's wise that the court tries to stick to its you know specific focus. But it's also practical that there be an off-ramp anytime there's a potential for a peace negotiation and, you know, further bloodshed. There's sort of a pure world and then there's the real world. And how you get to yes with a despotic ruler who is, you know, on some sort of marauding, rapacious, murderous rant that could continue if you can't bring them to the table. And sometimes it's better for humankind for that to happen. Although sometimes in the fullness of time, there can be accountability in other ways. Yeah, I mean, I think we're moving into a philosophical and uh, also (laughs) empirical debate. I mean, and there are a lot of scholars who have taken on this debate specifically. I mean, on one side, some would say that the worry about international criminal courts is that when they open these proceedings, they just entrench the despots who then have no incentive Mm -hmm. to back down and will stick to their guns till the bitter end because they don't want to face the court in The Hague. It's been a while since I've engaged with that debate specifically, but I, at the time and, and, and now I still don't think that's the case. I think of these issues oftentimes with a domestic analog, and we don't uh, eliminate penalties for murder domestically because we worry that if someone is going to murder someone and then, <laughs> then they, they find out that they will be charged, that, that they'll go ahead and like if we if we didn't penalize them, then maybe they wouldn't sort of thing. We do it mm-hmm. because in over time, first of all, the expressive message. And secondly, we hope that it does have general deterrence in the long run. I mean, yeah. OK, that was deeply philosophical, but yeah. I like that part of this conversation. <laughs> OK, um, so but but your earlier comment of, you know, we have these investigations that can originate within the court, which, by the way, begs the question of who decides the staffing at the ICC, who appoints the judges and who has a say in that? That is who gets to appoint judges can be very important to how a court functions and what they choose to take on. The ICC is structured in such a way that its sort of governing body, its kind of board, is the Assembly of State Parties that convenes annually. It's that 
community of states that brought the ICC, that the sort of parents of the state, if you will, of the institution. And it is they then who have this review mechanism, the actual regulations regard there are there are specific regulations about the staffing of the ICC but there are 18 judges and they are appointed through a very transparent and open process within the assembly of state parties who are the people in the assembly of state parties though so the assembly of state parties is basically all of the states that have ratified the treaty the rome statute send representatives who are watching what is going on with the with the court and they convene annually and review the proceedings of the court and its functions. Yeah, they're sort of the governing non-legal part of the functioning of the ICC. I wondered when I saw your question about, you know, who decided who decided the staffing of the ICC. I wasn't sure if you meant the actual when I think of staffing, I think of the administrative functions and the per, the personnel in the court more than the judges themselves, but judges are put forward by state parties and then go through this election process within the assembly of state parties. And sort of last question on that area, which Mm -hmm. is where does the funding for the court come from? So the funding for the court comes from the assembly of state parties I mean, there are some states, obviously, that are wealthier and more principally committed to the mission of the ICC, who may fund more than other states that don't have as many resources. But basically, it is accumulative funding from the Assembly of State Parties. It's about 169,650,000 euros is what the 2023 budget was. There have been 31 cases before the court, and some of those cases have had more than one defendant. The judges have issued 40 arrest warrants, and it's only with cooperation of states that you can actually get these defendants before the court. I mean, that is the that's the biggest challenge for the court in general, I think, is just procuring jurisdiction over the defendants themselves. And in the case of Russia and Ukraine, it's going to be the biggest challenge that we've seen to date. It will be the strongest test of the ICC. I personally believe that it's a gamble worth taking and that the norm is established by the issuance of the arrest warrant. And for example, the fact that Bashir, who is the leader of Sudan and was the first of state indicted by the ICC and who remains at large, the fact that he was indicted is a net positive for international criminal justice, but Putin may strain my my faith in that beyond a limit that uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, that gets to the point that they don't, the ICC has to, uh, defendant has to be physically present in court. And so you can't try somebody in absentia, which happens in a lot of places, it happens in Ukraine. They're apparently allowed to do that. I guess the question that I have is you've mentioned that the states would have to more or less turn them over, but I'm also imagining that the ICC really can't function without a cadre of investigators to carry out some of these investigations internationally. You know, they would need that kind of a staff. And then the other question is they they can't go on recovery missions and arrest people and bring them back. So you, you mentioned a little bit, you're sort of relying on the kindness of strangers, if you will, to turn them over. 
That's the beauty of the ICC, I think, is that it's both the promise and it's the constraints of the ICC. The promise is that the ICC is us, right? It is an institution established by states to advance this norm of accountability and to ensure for future generations that we don't have the atrocities that we humans have witnessed thus far. And so it is we as a global community who are supposed to be cooperating with the state. It isn't the international community imposing its will on a state, which it was with the ICTY and the ICTR, right? Those were top-down Security Council resolution imposed tribunals that still had tremendous value for advancing this experiment at that time of international criminal justice, but they were limited by their ad hoc nature. This is an institution that exists, has clearly articulated jurisdiction that puts all states on notice, and that has tremendous membership, you know, this 123 states parties that have created it and want it. The idea should be, though, they have to really want it to survive. And there's the constraint because it's similar to the institutions of the United Nations in a way in that, you know, the UN Charter was established with this vision of global cooperation and with a few embedded biases and concessions to the status quo. But the UN Charter was established to advance global cooperation, but it never established, there was possibility of establishing a standing army that was at the disposal of the UN Security Council, which hasn't yet come to fruition. There isn't that level of trust to have that standing army. Instead, each time the UN Security Council actually sends peacekeeping forces. They have to sort of create a new peacekeeping force from the Department of Peacekeeping Operations through negotiations with all the state parties. In an analogous fashion at the ICC, what it is missing from the Rome Statute is that very essential gumshoe detectives, the actual you know boots on the ground that are going around and collecting the hair fibers and so forth, that whole apparatus with the authority to enter a state and conduct its investigations. So I should say there is it, it exists, but it doesn't have that authority to to go in. So there are constant, constant challenges for the court in terms of actually conducting its investigations and then nabbing the defendant, the accused. Right. So actually mm -hmm. physically getting custody. Then the idea is that all the state's parties are supposed to collaborate. And so we were talking about Bashir and Bashir was a particularly hard test Basically, the reason it was a hard test is that it wasn't an us case because Sudan Explain was that not a little bit. We yeah, the, the Sudan was not a party to the Rome Statute. This was a case where the UN Security Council referred the situation in Sudan to the International Criminal Court. It was the first Security Council referral the court received. And so the court sort of hoped and I think justly expected that the Security Council would back up its referral with the enforcement power that it had used in the ad hoc tribunals 
but that didn't happen. So what happened was the situation was sent to the ICC. The prosecutor investigated and charged Omar Bashir as the first sitting head of state that the court had tried. Then there's a provision that requires the prosecutor to return to the Security Council and update the council on the process of the investigation in the case Mm -hmm. of a Security Council referral. So he would return six months later and say to the council, we have indicted, you know, Bashir, we need your cooperation. Please help us secure jurisdiction. And the council would very somberly hear his testimony and then really do nothing. So uh, that that cycle occurred or uh. continued the whole time, the whole time the out the arrest indictment was out there. And then to make matters worse, Bashir began to feel comfortable and realize that he was safe and that his friends on the Security Council were making sure that they had his back. They had his cobalt and they had his back. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. They had his back. And that's when he began to travel. And when he traveled, there's a provision of the Rome statute that requires states parties to apprehend the accused. Like a red notice. Like Interpol. Exactly. Exactly. So there you're relying on the kindness of basically your family members to actually make good. But like any dysfunctional family, some of those (laughs) Family members have their own little axes to grind and they didn't immediately apprehend Bashir and turn him in. And so then there's a procedure where eventually the court did report states that didn't enforce the arrest warrant to the Security Council. So there was this sort of telling on the states that didn't do what they were supposed to according to the terms of the Rome Treaty. Right. But, but with what consequences to that? But them? with what consequences except right. for momentary some loss of face. Uh, embarrassment. Yeah. Come on, yeah. Have I mean, a coffee, keep going, right? That's right. And so and then and yeah. this is then and that kind of perennial problem for all international institutions, which is what do you gain from expelling a bad member, right? What do you, right. what, what is the value for the future of cooperation when the penalty is you're out of the Rome statute? You know, it's not, right, right, right. Uh, that doesn't help anyone that that penalty doesn't really help. I mean, this is exactly a similar situation for Russia in the council of Europe, you know, the council of Europe, had allowed Russia to remain a member and hoped that the norms of rule of law and democracy and uh, freedom absorb. That, yeah. yeah, that they, the that they absorbed. Even as Russia remained an outlier and had the most violations against it, et cetera. And then the worry is like, wait, are, mm-hmm. is Russia now changing the content of what the Council of Europe is doing? Well, Russia's invasion into Ukraine has resolved that problem of international institutions, at least for the Council of Europe. And you can't the, quit me. I'm fired. That's right. Um, right. The people of Russia have no recourse to the European Court of Human Rights as a consequence, right? So there's no transparency about the alleged human rights violations that are occurring there. That's the problem with expelling bad members of international Those, those engaged in contumacy of one kind or another. Yes. Back to the main point about the capacity of the ICC to actually nab people and, and haul them into court and have them sit there and hear the claims against them and, and participate in their trial. The worst test was with Bashir. And I actually checked before we talked to see where is where's Bashir these days. And The Guardian reported, like, I guess a month ago that he had 
Sudan's army confirmed that it's holding the deposed president at a military hospital after mm. the prison he was in was attacked by paramilitaries. He and five others, including the, the defense minister, are basically right now booty for the government there. They haven't taken the step of surrendering Bashir to the ICC still. Well, he, he may uh, wish he'd surrendered himself. As this unfolds, honestly, yeah. it yeah. may be a, a better yeah. ending. Yeah, but I will say an optimist because I was kind of obsessed with Bashir and his travels during that time that he was in office. And, you know, there were some, I guess, success light, I would call it from an international law perspective. When yeah. he visited South Africa, the courts there basically decided while he was in the country that he did have to be apprehended and turned in. And right as they were issuing their decision, he took off. So he had to leave conference he had visited mm-hmm. um, suddenly, abruptly, sort of in the middle of the night kind of thing, because he knew that this this court decision was coming out. And so there we had at the state level, an African state putting a check on the executive and saying, no, 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 our membership in the Rome statute and in the ICC needs to be honored. And so there were these sort of mini successes without actually getting Bashir. The ICC doesn't have the warships, the drones, the capacity to actually go in and physically nab it. So so what is remarkable yeah, is so that- So there's no James Bond that's going to parachute in, grab him. There's going to be a helicopter that comes in and they're going to get out. I mean, no, that's that something to think about. Movie. That's like Rome, Rome Conference Part 2 is like making the James Bond of the ICC. Uh, I, can no, envision, but- I, could, I could help you draft that. I think we yeah, can get there. yeah. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.